Okay, I'm gonna get this out of the way right now. Um, the only good part about Ultimate Marvel is Spider-Man. Everything else sucks. <laughs> Welcome to Recommended Reading with Jackson Heyman, everyone. Um, yeah, we're talking about one really good comic, but we're also gonna do some deconstructing of a kind of all right kind of bad business decision marvel made um welcome to ultimate comics parentheses but mostly (laughs) spider-man i am once again joined by probably one of the biggest spider-man fans i know um someone who inspired me to get more into spider Spider spider-man comics um eddie Pacell. how are you doing What's up? What's up? Yeah, I love Spider-Man. I love almost everything about him, besides a couple of runs here and there. I mean, let's be honest. (laughs) But uh, when it comes to Spider-Man, I think, honestly, I think Ultimate Spider-Man's in the top three, 100%. It has to be, right? Like, I'm coming into this from perspective having only read the first seven issues, but... It's genuinely one of the best Spider-Man things I've ever experienced. Oh yeah, it's it's wonderful. Brian Michael Bendis is just he's he's wonderful in this book. Like seriously, in this, in this book. <laughs> yeah. In this book. yeah, he. We, uh, we, we'll talk about it. I would say this is his golden years, to be honest. Um, also audience at home if i sound weird i've got a bit of a cold it's been like 25 degrees all week in minnesota so i'm struggling over here but yeah if i sound weird that's why it's also 9 50 in the morning good morning everyone (laughs) um let's just jump into um history i've got i've got a lot of notes wonderful i want to take you all back to um the late 80s early 90s kind of oh, yeah the boom for comics would you, you you'd say so right i would definitely say so that was a, a if not the boom just like a huge milestone in the comic yeah. book business history like they had never been more popular and more in the mainstream cultural zeitgeist until that point um, right th- this is the this is the era of the graphic novel being seen as like prestige art this is the era of expensive holofoil covers and trading cards included with number one issues right. this is the era of rob liefeld and jim lee dominating the art game oh but, dude yeah but Marvel was in a weird place. In 86, they had sold to um, New World Entertainment. And then in 89, Marvel Entertainment gets sold to like a holding company. And then run by this guy named Ronald Perlman. And um, he starts to um, go public with the stock in the early 90s. Um, he issues junk bonds to acquire other entertainment companies. And in about 19, at about 1994, the comic industry crashes. 
it the the bubble bursts. It's we've seen it in the housing market, in internet stocks, in everything. Like a market will explode and boom and then crash. And it happened with comics. May they rest in peace. I mean well, okay. Well, <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. I mean I mean do we really want to memorialize the 90s of comics the the early 90s specifically very 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 good point there (laughs) i think this was a justified crash may they may they rest i should reiterate may they rest yes um (laughs) (laughs) uh no pete not peacefully um but (laughs) but this was also the time when liefeld and lee and people like Eric Larson and other independent artists, creatives, they left Marvel and DC, and this is where Image starts to rise up. This is Image and Wildstorm, like the birthplace of these indie creator-owned companies that focus more on original stories and these properties being owned by their creators. Which should be the model, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, Image and, Comics is goaded for that. Um, yeah, early Image kind of does suck, though. Um, current, <laughs> current Image rules. Love um, them. Early Image um, with Youngblood and Savage Dragon and what other things that I can't think. Spawn Honestly, rules. Yeah, I, think Spawn, I barely remember. Spawn rules, but... They were doing, especially the Liefeld stuff, was doing too much to emulate what was bad about comics at the time. Yeah. But then they really found their niche moving away from superhero stuff. Yeah, that that was huge for them. Yes. Um, in 96, we also get um, Marvel filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and then... <laughs> In 97, uh, Marvel is sold to another company, and not the company you think. Uh, No, before the Disney buyout, uh, Marvel gets sold to Toy Biz. (laughs) Anyone remember Toy Biz? Oh, man. (laughs) They're a toy company. Are they still around? Let's find out. Oh, oh, no, that's Toy Wiz. Um, Hold on. (laughs) <laughs> um let's see let's see what their wikipedia says i'm looking right now um technically okay it is under new ownership in as of 2022 interesting they are a canadian toy company that had the licensing the licensing for all the marvel properties and that was the big boom in the 90s. That's where Marvel was getting most of their money from the toys and from the animated series, which were spearheaded by the Toy Biz leadership. Yeah, and that includes, like, that classic uh, animated cine- like cinematic universe, right? Like Spider-Man, uh, the, the animated series. Uh, I think it was, there was an X-Men one, I believe. X-Men, Do I have Silver that timeline right? It was X-Men first. X-Men was the boom, and that happened before the bankruptcy, just a little before. But then 
94 to like 96, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, Silver Surfer, Iron Man, Hulk, all these characters get at least one season of a Saturday morning cartoon. Varying in quality. Yeah. <laughs> Spider-Man was great. I love Spider-Man. Spider-Man, Spider-Man was good. X-Men rules. The X-Men oh, is yeah. the best of that, of that era. Yes. Um, Fantastic Four has that stupid uh, Johnny Storm rapping bit that I really like. And oh, I mean yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. With the arrival of Toy Biz, um, three major figures come into play. Let's let's run down the line. First, I'll say his name and everyone knows his deal. Avi Arad. <laughs> the CEO of Toy Biz, the then the eventual CCO of Mar- CCO of Marvel Entertainment. And now the chairman and CEO of Marvel Studios, specifically handling all the Sony stuff. Um, he is the arm of this triumvirate of executives that handles the movies and all the licensing deals. And he's the reason the movie rights are as fucked as they are now. Yeah, he's also the reason... Uh... As everybody, their mom knows, Venom was in Spider-Man 3 when yes. he didn't need to be. He, he's the reason for all the weird Sony creative decisions. Yep. <laughs> Alright, he's a guy. He doesn't play a lot into the um, ultimate Marvel side of things, but I wanted to bring him up specifically because of his connection to the movies, especially the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, which, in my opinion, borrow a lot from Ultimate Spider-Man. Sure. Uh, next, fucking Ike Perlmutter, dude. That's that's my first note. Oh, fucking Ike Perlmutter. Um, <laughs> still current CEO of our Marvel Entertainment. But what does he do? What does he do? He, you, I've read so many articles. So I've done so much research about Ike Perlmutter, and. It seems like everyone else involved in the higher executive suite of Marvel Entertainment, Marvel Studios, everyone hates him and just wants him to go away. Pretty much. He's, um, when he was involved with Marvel Studios in particular, um, refused to greenlight, um, films starring female superheroes like Captain Marvel, um, Reason she did not get a movie until 2019. Um, he's the reason um, Terrence Howard was, was replaced with Don Cheadle in the Iron Man franchise. Yep. Because uh, he thought no one would notice. <laughs> Verbatim, thought no one would notice. Oh, man. Oh, um, man. Pushed in humans over the X-Men for about nine years um, in comics, in TV, um, for all these things, specifically because the X-Men film licensees were owned by somebody else at the time. Fucking Ike Perlmutter, dude. Yeah, and that Inhumans thing really worked out for them. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Um, Oh, I have a quote. I don't remember who this quote is from, but I... I have this quote in my notes. 
Ike Perlmutter, Ike Perlmutter neither discriminates nor cares about diversity. He just cares about what he thinks will make money. And if that doesn't uh, explain a stereotypical, like, chairman of a company, uh, I don't really know what what does. <laughs> everything I read about the man, and I don't know what he looks like, but everything I read about the man, I just picture a cigar-chomping feet-on-desk-in-a-high-glass-walled penthouse just yelling. Uh, you're pretty correct. Check out this, uh, this photo of him. And then I'll include a little bonus one of him getting dusted away now that, uh, Bob Iger's oh back. My God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, no, he... <laughs> he kind of looks like Nixon. A little bit. He, he kind of kinda does. Like, he kind of looks like Nixon. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I forgot that we share this Discord server with previous guests. So, previous guests, Cena Bulls, <laughs> just um, message to this server. Um, thrilled w- with what this means for whatever episode you're recording. <laughs> oh boy, yes, it, yes, you should be thrilled. Um, <laughs> but, um, so... And the third member of this group that comes in with the Toy Biz acquisition is Bill Jemis, um, the now former publisher of Marvel. Um, he was a former lawyer who worked mostly in the trading card industry, another big industry of the 90s that then fell to time, fell to the wayside, just like the comics industry. Yeah. Um, had no experience in the production of comics. Says a lot. Um, I think all three of these men didn't have a lot of experience in the comics industry itself and were coming from, like, an outsider perspective. Yeah. Um, But he is the reason um, a lot of modern Marvel and a lot of modern comics are the way they are. Uh, he increased the amount of trade trade paperbacks Marvel was publishing. Uh, he created the Marvel Knights division, which pretty much revitalized a lot of characters in the late 90s. Daredevil, oh, yeah. Punisher, Fantastic Four, too. Spider-Man um, had a Marvel Knights book, Spider- too. That's right, yeah. Um, but he also made a specific figure um, who we have talked about on this show before, um, Editor-in-Chief. Oh. We all we all know his name. Do we dare say it? <laughs> no, this, we're not going to censor any of these names this time because we are calling people out on some bullshit. <laughs> Joe Casada, editor in chief. Thanks to Bill Jones. I mean, fuck him. Fuck him. Fuck him. No, no. <laughs> fuck, fuck him. But fuck him. But we're gonna have to. Sadly, we're going to have to praise Joe Quesada because he makes some good decisions with Ultimate Marvel. With yeah, Ultimate sure. Spider-Man, specifically. He gets a little bit um, of credit credit for that. We can give him a little credit. Um, but Jemis became a controversial figure um, with Marvel due to some creative decisions. Um, he also um, was known to get into public fights with top Marvel talent. 
and um, he called uh, he publicly like called DC AOL Comics all the time because of their owner at the time. He he picked fights. He was he was a he was a confrontational man. Very. Um. But these three come in. Quesada gets placed as editor in chief, and they decide we need to revitalize Marvel at the time. Um, because uh, this is a direct quote from an article I read. Um, before Ultimate Marvel, um, Marvel Comics was publishing stories that were all but impossible for teens to read and unaffordable to boot. We, there were three nearly four decades of continuity that people had to slog through if they wanted to understand what was going on in Marvel at the time. Yeah. And, and especially with Spider-Man. Oh my gosh. And it's and like it's only even worse now. <laughs> with all the more history you have to read. But, but man. Well yeah, what was going on with Spider-Man in the nineties? Do you wanna do you wanna give us a little rundown? Um, Spider-Man in the 90s, well, let's first, again, establish that he had an awesome cartoon happening over on the, the Fox Kids Network. Uh, he, I, I believe also this was the era of Todd McFarlane coming yes. in as the artist of The Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, I believe he also drew for just, just the Spider-Man book um he had some also pretty uh, like iconic visual like comic covers that have become very, very uh kind of uh what would you say like iconic looks i, I don't want to keep saying iconic but uh well, they're very that, defining that one that, yeah there's that one that keeps getting shit like the spider-man one cover where he's on the web and it's that pose. Yep. Yes. And yes. I, I can't describe it anymore, but you just know what I'm talking about. Yes, this was also the era of the dreaded um, clone saga and eventually Ben Riley's uh, the handoff to Ben Riley as Spider-Man uh, becoming the sensational Spider-Man and getting his uh, first ever Spider-Man costume that i think was just awesome uh yeah. that that was great uh i believe in the late 90s uh was also when john Romita jr began to take over as the artist okay. leading into the 2000s uh and he's like my favorite spider-man artist so i yeah. i have to i have to mention him but it was um it was a time in the books where it kind of felt like they really didn't know what they wanted to do uh, in terms of telling Spider-Man stories, especially when it came to the Clone Saga. Yeah, because didn't the Clone Saga balloon for nearly like two, three years almost? Yeah, the Clone Saga, which was supposed to just be um, a couple of issues of crossover, turned into... Uh, four, it ran through, I think it was like four or three titles. Uh, um, 
Would you believe it's six titles? Oh, is that including like uh, like spinoff stuff? So it's Amazing Spider-Man, Sensational Spider-Man, Spectacular Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Spider-Man Unlimited, and Web of Spider-Man. Right, and and if I'm not mistaken, it ran from I think ninety three. No, it ran from ninety four to ninety six. Uh, yes, almost two full years. I think it's off by a little bit. Like maybe it's like one and a half, but it was a long, long, long storyline that did not need to be that long. But for some reason, the story just kept elevating itself and i know that there is a full like history behind it i just don't know it to the ability where i can confidently say these are the facts of that you know whole shebang that was the that was the other thing i i listed off all those titles there were six spider-man titles going on oh my god yeah in marvel at the time marvel had six spider-man titles you couldn't keep any of this straight. Oh no, definitely not. So, so the plan, um, the plan for Ultimate Marvel, um, was to create a new line of comics, retelling or relaunching the origins of popular Marvel characters, and this was all happening while the mainstream stream comic runs would continue to exist. Yeah. So you get teenage Peter and adult Peter going on their own different adventures at the same time. Yeah, because it was just such a weird time for the character. And I, I got to give them credit for the fact that they realized that this was just not a feasible like starting point for for books. And the fact that you... Essentially, to keep, had to keep up uh, with the current Spider-Man, you had to be reading all six of those books, um, which is a lot, man. Like, oh my god, for dollar ninety-nine, I think at that point. Yeah, and I think they they were all at the least monthly releases, if not bi-weekly. Yeah. yeah. So, imagine you're a kid, you get paid a little allowance, all of your allowance and pocket money, oh god, I sounded old, I'm 23, don't listen to me, um, <laughs> but, but all of your allowance was going to Spider-Man, and even then you couldn't keep up with it. Yeah. I think the other, the other big thing that was, in, that was a need, that created a need for Ultimate Marvel was the fact that movies were on the way. This is yes. the late 90s. We get we get the deals with Fox and Sony to start launching X-Men and Spider-Man. And I have a quote from Casada here. Um, the movies were the other consideration. We were on the cusp of having these great Hollywood blockbusters, and we knew that many of the movies were going to feature distilled down-to-their-essence versions of of our characters, and in many cases, versions that the core books no longer represented. Yeah. Like, throw in a little shade. That, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, justified shade. Yes, 100%.
because stra straying over to the X-Men for, for a second, the X-Men that were in the 99 movie, a lot of them weren't even on the main team anymore at the yeah. time. Yeah, no. X-Men had, had just as bad as Spider-Man. Like, yeah, and I think that started the trend of whenever a movie comes out for a, for a comic book character, uh, still to this day, the comic book version of that character usually makes a shift to be a, yes. a little closer to the movie. Like, when, when Homecoming came out, um, they started pushing techier Spider-Man. And mm -hmm. they released a book called Web of Spider-Man, where it is essentially Tom Holland's version of the character with characters that are akin to Tom Holland's own cast of characters. Um, and and it's I think it's both a good and kind of bad thing in the sense of like people who love following the comic book stories probably don't like getting a like year a new version of the character and kind of cutting off a lot of the, the titles that they usually get uh, I in terms of get, stories. I kind of like that they've strayed away from it, at least Marvel has recently, because when, like, the Venom movie was coming out, there you had that going on in the movies, but Venom in the comics was fighting Eldritch Gods. Yeah! They've, they've completely strayed away from trying to keep up with continuity. At yeah. least in some cases. Yeah, I think for most characters, they've kind of uh, been like that. I don't think that they've really necessarily done it for characters that are new, right? Yeah. Like uh, Miss Marvel, Moon Knight, those guys. But I think for the most part, we're feeling pretty safe about um, like Spider-Man and stuff. Because yeah. when like No Way Home was coming out, I think they were doing Sinister War, which was oh, yeah. a whole... When No Way Home was coming out, we were dealing with um, evil Ben Riley. Oh my gosh. And we still are. We're still dealing with evil Ben Riley. I don't even keep up with Spider-Man right now. He's canceled now. I read Dark Web because I like Maddie Pryor and I like Havoc and I liked that they were around. Yeah. But yeah. Chasm. Oh, yeah, that's a whole other thing. Um, but another, going back to this, trying to, like, trying to correspond the comics to the movies, you had Ultimate X-Men debut, and they were all in black leather. That was the norm for the X-Men for a couple of years. Black leather, more tactical gear, rather than the costumes. Yeah. Which was I a choice. One, yeah, it was a choice. I... I liked the way Morrison and Quitely did it. I didn't yep. like the Ultimate version. No. <laughs> There's um, a lot of bad things about Ultimate X-Men, which we, we can... Uh, ooh, I have a... There's a lot of bad things about the Ultimate Universe. I have a list. Incredible. Um, we'll get to the list later. <laughs> but uh, one last quote from Quesada. Um, the goal with Ultimate Marvel was to keep it new reader-friendly while offering the current fandom a glimpse at what Marvel, the Marvel U, would be like if we really could clean slate, start from scratch, and hit it with all the modern nuances we could. That was the other big thing about Ultimate Marvel. 
it was centered in the time that it was being published. Yes. And it was yeah. so with the times. It was as close to real time comics as we got up until that point. For sure. Like, Peter Parker was a high school student in the 2000s. You, going further in the timeline of the Ultimate Universe, S.H.I.E.L.D. was more dealing with our, and our being an arm of the federal government, and yep. the Avengers of the Ultimate Universe were more tactical and more like a strike force than a superhero. Team. Yeah, and, and good or bad, Captain America represented like a legitimate like um like soldier at the time like he wasn't as much captain america as he was a, a, a soldier like he he uh he he kind of lost a little bit of the typical captain america traits to represent more of a hard ass like uh yeah <laughs> He, he was more nationalistic. He really represented, yes. like, big post-9-11 hardcore nationalism. Yeah. Shit that we still see from the far right to this day, but... Well, the big thing that makes me... That what I think of Ultimate Captain America is the one-panel spread where it's the close-up on his face and he's pointing to the A on his mask and he's saying, You think this A stands for France? Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. Not good. But I, I, I have something I want to talk about with this idea of keeping it modern, scrubbing away all the continuity hiccups and just mess of 616 Marvel while still letting 616 and 1610, the two universes, exist alongside each other. I think that's the best way you can appeal to fans and to new readers. Right. A hundred percent. Which is why, you know, we are a decade removed, but I think this is what DC should have done with the new 52 rather than a hard reboot of every continuity that they had. Let the books keep going the main DC books keep going. Let that continuity happen. And then bring in your modern day Justice League. Your mo your modern modernist take on all these characters. Yeah, and I think that was a good thing about the animated universe for DC. Is they could have did that. Like, starting with yes. Justice League War. and That's what they should have done, for sure. It's... It's difficult because with books like Batman and Green Lantern in the New 52, so many other characters had their slates completely wiped clean and most of their previous continuity ignored. When the Green Lantern New 52 series was just a continuation of what had been going on in the Green Lantern books up until that point. No mention of a reboot at all, no real change. And then the Batman books tried to cram decades of continuity into a five-year timeline. Which was when, just a lot of kind of clustered Yes, it was, it was a clusterfuck. And yeah. now we're at the DC state where everything is canon, which might be worse.
my opinion. Oh, for so, sure. Um, but yeah, so the two big books of Ultimate Marvel that their flagship titles were X-Men and Spider-Man. Now, X-Men was given to Mark Millar, and Spider-Man was given to Brian Michael, Beg- Brian Michael Bendis and Mark Bagley doing the art. We'll come back to them in a second, but I gotta get to my list. Oh yeah, here we go. Welcome to my mini-segment, Bad Parts of the Ultimate Universe. This is a list of everything that, um, w- that, I, that I think people do not care for about the Ultimate Universe. Um, Hulk is a cannibal. The Hulk was a cannibal. Let that sink in. <laughs> Bruce Banner ate people. Let that sink in. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, Ultimate uh, Deadpool was an anti-mutant bigot and also a cyborg. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Blob eats the Wasp. <sighs> More cannibalism. Wolverine murders Cyclops out of jealousy over Jean Grey. Oh my god. <laughs> That's a different way their love triangle played out. Yep. Ultimate Hank Pym. Worse than... 616 Hank Pym. Which no one thought was possible <laughs> until they did it. He's worse. Wanda and Pietro. Wanda and Pietro. Uh, yeah. I, oh, gosh. Oh, Trigger warning for anyone who decides to look that up in their free time. Don't look it up. Don't look it up. Um, hey, guess what? We're, you want to know what the last two are on the list are? Oh, what are they? More, more cannibalism. Oh, oh, oh my. You never think about how much cannibalism is in the Ultimate Universe until it happens. Oh, well, Giant Man ate the Blob as revenge for Blob eating Wasp. <laughs> God. So let's, let's move into talking about Bendis and Bagley. They yeah. were... Bagley was at his peak at this time. He had been main Spider-Man artist for a while and then comes over to Ultimate and then becomes one of the definitive Spider-Man artists, I would say. Yep. Yep, 100% on board with that. uh, There's a way way Bagley draws, Bagley designs characters and the way he draws motion and intense moments. It's yeah, really and, nice to see. Yes. Um like there's something he does where uh what what am I thinking of? The the way that he draws Spider-Man swinging feels so there's something different about it than you see in 616 at the time. You know, like it it feels like when you look at it, it's like a ballet dance in the air. Like there's there's just something so like fluid looking about it. Like the, this is the first thing this this image here is the first thing I think of in, in the sense of like you really get this this feeling of yes. weightlessness as he swings. Oh. It's it's incredible. This is also a really good example of 
what I think Bagley does really well in these first seven issues of Ultimate Spider-Man is um, the way he uses light and shadow. Oh, yeah. He's, there he's are a... multiple moments here where I don't think they would have worked as well had there not been these extremely harsh shadows or moments of complete darkness where Peter is the only character illuminated. Um, all the stuff with the goblin being this hooded figure in shadow is so good. Yeah, and it's so much to this this menacing aspect of this version of the goblin. But this is that's something that I think a lot of 2000s comics were doing. These really exaggerated angles and lights and shadows and color tones that make this era of comics one of my favorite just artistic aesthetic eras. It's more at, like cinematic. It's really cinematic. Yeah, that's you're absolutely right there. Like, you look at current comics, and most of the time, you don't get stuff like this. No, not at all. But, let's talk about Bendis. Yeah. Brian Michael Bendis. A infamous figure? Infamous? Uh, I would... A controversial... Uh, I would say not, not because of anything the man has done. I don't think no, but because of the stories he's told. Yes, I would say so. I think there is good Bendis and there is bad Bendis. Bad when he's Bendis. Good, he's great. Yeah, when Bendis is good, it's really good. When Bendis is bad, it <laughs> ranges. It ranges from mediocre to why did you do this? Yeah, what was your thought process? Like, explain to me what went into the story development process of this. I don't want to go through everything bad about Bendis, but I just want to um, highlight a few specific examples to show what some bad, like, things I don't like about his tendencies. Yeah. For for one thing, he tends to he's he's a very he's one of the reasons a lot of modern comic storylines expand to six or seven issues because he's the king of decompressed storytelling. I want to use House of M as a big example. There are pages in House of M, which I think is a ten issue miniseries, eight ten issues, something like that. There are pages there where nothing happens and the art just sits there in silence. Yeah. The story does not progress. You just watch these moments happen. Nothing's really being done to move the plot forward. Yeah, it's a it's a big like we need to fill a page. <laughs> so let's fill it. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that can work. That can work. And I will talk about why it works for Ultimate Spider-Man. Yeah. But for other stories, it really doesn't work. Time and place. But that's just my that's just my personal preference. Uh, he also made a lot of bad character decisions um, with um, 180, the characters that I don't really 
enjoy. But uh, John Kent, for example, when he was writing Superman, but everyone knows about that. Yeah. Um, but also, you think about his X-Men stuff, and it's just contributing to why the X-Men had about a decade that people like to forget. <laughs> the decade. The, 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 the lost decade, from like 2009 to 2019, before, right before Hickman comes in. This, partially because of Bendis, but partially because of a lot of writers and a lot of creative decisions. But Bendis is the reason we had the original time-displaced teenage versions of the original five X-Men running around modern Marvel for about three years. Oh, yeah. Mm, what a choice. A choice. What a choice. <laughs> Choices yeah, were made. It certainly was a choice that was, happened. Yes. It was but one of the choices of all time. Yeah. <laughs> Let's dive into what what is so great about Ultimate Spider-Man. Oh, man. There's a list. I, oh, I don't have a list, but this is just a free-form um, conversation. But I like, and I, I know I just bashed Bendis for this, I like that he takes the 11-page story from Amazing Fantasy 15 and expands it into a seven-issue storyline. Yes, and I think this is something that the Amazing Spider-Man took from Ultimate Comics, was the fact that he decides to expand the, the plot to a point where we actually get to spend a lot of time with Uncle Ben and form him into a three-dimensional character before he passes away and it does so much to add to that death and for us to empathize more with peter because we actually got to see this character grow and develop into three dimensions and be someone we could genuinely say we cared a lot about and not just a plot point of oh this guy's gonna die so that peter can be spider-man it's like we know he's gonna die so bendis makes it so that we don't want him to by the time that he does pass. This is the best Uncle Ben and Aunt May in an origin concept. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love these two so much. I, well, I also, I also think, like, design-wise from Bagley, and just their attitude, the way Bendis writes them, 60s Ben and May are ancient. They are yeah. so old. Yeah, they act the like it. Ultimate Ben and Ultimate May seem like very fun grandparents. Yes, they do. And, and they're also very... Well, especially with... Uh, you see it with, with Uncle Ben, especially in his, uh, his great power speech, which I think is just absolutely incredible. Um, but you also see it throughout the series with May... They feel less like in, you know, 616, where she's kind of like old and like, oh, Peter, now don't get into too much trouble now. Aunt May, uh, for the entire series, is a parent. She's a parent figure. She's not 
some old lady who's always worried about Peter. No, there's so many times throughout the book where she puts her foot down and is like, hey, stop being a little asshole. All right? We you're grounded. Like there's she they're parents. Like they're genuine parents. They genuinely care. And but they're also not afraid to call people out on their bullshit, especially Peter. Especially Peter, because Peter in this book can be a little bit of a shithead, which no, I love because he's a teenager I, and it fits I, so well. He, the ultimate Peter Parker represents the like the definitive grew up in the late 90s, early 2000s teenager to me. Yeah. Um, design wise. I Bagley does a really good job of capturing what I really like about the original Ditko Peter Parker. Yeah. While still, like, updating him for the 2000s. Because, have you heard the story of um, John Romita Sr., when he takes over drawing Spider-Man, the first thing Ditko says to him is, don't make Peter Parker hot. Because (laughs) Ditko, Ditko Peter looks like an alien. He's got the big forehead, these crazy glasses. But then Romita... And I, I saw that I read this in an interview or saw it somewhere. Can't, but Ramita's whole thing is, I, I mean, I just drew him and he came out hot. <laughs> Pretty much. But Ultimate Peter Parker is still growing into his own skin yes. and is <laughs> uh, I don't want to call him ugly, but he's in that stage of life that everyone goes through yes. where he hasn't grown into his own skin. He's, you know, he he doesn't look great. Like he hasn't it's, fully developed as a human being yet, and you can it's tell. It's pubescent. It's mid pubescent Peter Parker. Yes, and it fits super well, especially with that weird haircut that he's His got. Stupid right. fucking haircut. Yeah. I love it so much. It's trying to be late 90s leo dicaprio yeah but there's something off about it (laughs) yeah and uh it 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 fits so well in my opinion because everyone in in this time of their lives you know it's just trying to figure themselves out uh and has zits has pimples and and just yes. doesn't really know what they want to do with how they look and it's especially the boys at this age who's like genuinely probably couldn't care less about how they look uh that's that's peter parker in a nutshell this book is also a time capsule of that early 2000s aesthetic and just attitude towards everything and I think that's mostly exemplified in the fashion sense of this. Yeah. It it is peak early 2000s fashion. Um you've got MJ in the overalls at the Oscorp lab. You've yeah. Got, you've got the Peter wearing like a button-up shirt over a t-shirt. Oh yeah. Every, everyone at schools where wearing- like all the girls are wearing like tank tops and and uh, uh the boys are like in these kind of like baggy jeans and they are in very baggy clothes. Yes, a hundred percent. Harry Harry encapsula- encapsulates all of this. <laughs> yes, Harry, he does. 
No, Harry, okay. So I know the Raimi Spider-Man movies get a lot of shit for how their teenagers don't look like teenagers. Ultimate Harry Osborn looks like he's in his late 20s. Yeah, you put him with Peter. Uh, <laughs> and he they just they just don't look like they're the same age. They literally don't. Harry's got such a chiseled jawline that Oh that my gosh. It, it it doesn't he he looks like he was held back a decade. Yeah, no, and I'm trying to find this this panel from a future issue that I just cannot come across, but there's like this conversation in volume like seven that they have where they're in the same room together and it's just like it's like Peter's speaking to someone like two grades above him and I'm like what am I looking at right now why are the two of you friends if he look <laughs> if Harry you look like that and Peter looks like that oh yeah um I like what Bagley did to update um, Norman Osborn's hair. Yeah. Keeping the base design, but getting rid of the waves. The w- I, yeah. I love the waves. The waves are fun. I love the waves. But it, this Norman Osborn makes sense for a, an encapsulation of the late 90s self-made billionaire sort of thing. Yes, and Something I do want to mention now that we're on the topic of, of Norman Osborn. I love Norman Osborn's whole, whole writing in, in this book of seeing himself as a god amongst like yeah. mortals. And I think it goes because the, the goblin design gets a lot, a lot of flack for like, like just a Hulk like character. But in my eyes, I think the way that he writes Norman supports that design choice so well. Absolutely. Because Norman views himself as a god among men. So when he becomes the goblin, he has the physique of a god. Like he is he is this mythical looking being. And it's so good. Yeah. Um I got we only have 20 minutes left in this record time, so we have to, like, hurry through. But I want to talk about character interactions a little bit. Yeah. The characters feel so much more defined than they do in Amazing Fantasy 15. I read this and the original Spider-Man story back-to-back as a test for research. And... Obviously, 60s comics are written in such a way where, yeah, people reading them now aren't gonna aren't, aren't gonna relate to them that much, and it was obviously written for a different audience. But even so, you just care so much about everyone more in Ultimate Spider-Man. Yeah. No, for sure. You care so much more about uh, the status of their relationships as well. Like Peter and MJ, I want the, I want to see them be Endgame. 
you know, because because they have yeah. so much chemistry on paper, like and, and um, like Flash Thompson. I'm like, man, I hope that kid is like just gets what's coming towards him because he's an asshole and like everyone feels his fully his, fleshed by that flash by that third issue even. Yeah, Flash's buddy is also fun. I like Kong. Kong is awesome, and the more you read, if you do continue to read the book, he becomes an entire mainstay, more than what? Flash. He what? is such a good character. I love Kenny Kong. He's great. Oh my god. But, yeah. it, And especially the Peter-Ben-May relationship is so grounded and way more tense than 60s peter ben may right they get into arguments and oh yeah peter's a hothead asshole he is he totally is yeah he'll he'll say some things where i'm like man you're such a douche but you know what at your age i probably was a douche as well you know like it captures that teen angst really well. Yeah. And he's he's very arrogant, very self-centered, and you what what I got from reading this is after all the tragedy that happens in these first 7 issues, I want to watch him grow. Yeah. And that's the whole appeal of the book is you see this young boy grow into a man. Um and it's like so cathartic. Um, That's... he he is a good person. Like you see that. Like you see that he's a good person, but he has such huge character flaws. Like, like in terms of him being a good person, like when uh, the goblin falls in the river, immediately Peter's like, "Hey, everybody! Like we need to go down there. We need to get him out. He could drown. He's gonna die." And so even though he's like this kind of uh, angsty prick, he still has those core fundamentals. So like you want to see grow into what six one six is as like a romanticized superhero. You want to see him grow out of his his character flaws and into someone that is just full on grown and 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 good and true and it's it's awesome because he and the flaws make him better is is what i'll say they make him so much better this is an objectively flawed peter parker and i think it really works what i like about peter parker as a character is he gets the world thrown onto him and he always gets back up yeah, and this he reacts Peter, normally. Yeah. This Peter right now, all this shit is getting piled onto him, and he is getting angry, but I think it's justified for this version of the character at this point in his history. Yes, and there's so much more I wish I could talk about without spoiling, but um, his reactions are because of the absolute scrutiny and and horrid things that he's thrown into um 
his reactions are earned. Uh, like there, uh, without spoiling uh, too much, there's a moment later in the book where Peter is is trying to save somebody, and a larger Marvel character is not there to do that and kind of uh, deals with things the way the Ultimates do, in the sense of, like, I'm not saying they're an Ultimate, but, like, the way that superheroes, besides Spider-Man, in the Ultimate Marvel Universe, they're kind of just like, all right, everybody, bag them and tag them, let's kick the shit out of these guys, and, uh, you know, like, like, Peter's not about that. There's a there's a moment later where something like that happens, and there's this larger Marvel character, and Peter just punches them right in the face, like just stalks the crap out of them because he's like, "What are you doing? Like, we can save." He gets so mad, but it's earned because mm-hmm. Peter's actively trying to save somebody. Um, yeah, and he's mad that. No one seems to care about that. Um, it's great. It, it's it's so good, and uh, I think a lot of that uh, character interaction stuff we spoke about was because Bendis is good and in Ultimate Spider-Man. Like when when he is really good, he's great with dialogue. He's great yeah. with conversations. Like they feel real. They're not uh, something that I've always struggled with with comic books. Is that a lot of the conversations are very just like, uh, let's get the exposition out mm-hmm. on page as soon as we can. Whereas here, he takes a lot of time to let conversations feel natural and real. So instead of reading it and just being like, "Oh, I'm flushed with exposition," it's like the exposition is written into conversations so that we don't feel like we're getting exposition. We're just reading this conversation like it's we're listening in as like a fly on the wall. It's it comes back to that cinematic feel you were talking about, I think. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like Bendis is the like if Bendis wasn't writing comic books, I'd want him to be a screenwriter. Listen, I think he's out. I think he's out of DC now, so honestly, keep him away from comics, but let him write movies, and I'll give him another shot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think he's like helped writing on on some movies. Uh, I, uh, he apparently developed an adult animated Legion of Superheroes show. Oh. Okay. Um, he wrote the series pilot for the uh, CG animated Neil Patrick Harris Spider-Man: The New Animated Series on MTV. Um, Makes sense given the <laughs> MTVness of this. And I'm pretty sure I don't think he wrote on the actual movie, but I'm pretty sure he was an advisor for, like, like a producer maybe for the. Uh, uh, into the Spider-Verse That film. tracks. That and same tracks. for uh, the live-action uh, the live-action interpretation of Powers as well. Oh, oh, wasn't that a PlayStation original? 
Yes, it was a PlayStation original. That was a, the the PlayStation original powers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh my gosh! With the last couple minutes of this, I just want to—I have a bunch of little details that I really like about this this book so far that Sweet. I just want to throw out, and we could just talk about them. Yep. Uh, number one, Doc Ock. Otto ah. Octavius is Otto Octavius is barely in this, uh, but I love him in these first seven issues. He's so stoic, and he's got his little glasses and his turtleneck, yeah. and it rules. And he becomes such a great villain later Lord. on with his own set of, of genuine... Like, he's not like this mustache twirly, like, Aha, Spider-Man, I'm gonna kick your ass! He he has these, these morals and these goals to a point where when Spider-Man gets in the middle of them... I'm like, okay, I see why he grows to hate Spider because he has an end goal that has nothing to do with him, and Peter is just like a fly in his face that he's trying to get away. Um, and as he grows and develops later on as a character, he becomes more and more likable as, you know... Again, I can't spoil anything. But he, he grows, and he grows less into a villain and more into just like a person who just wants to get what he needs done and move on with his life uh, and it's great it's so good amazing number two on my list is uncle ben's ponytail hell yeah <laughs> rules. He, he rules what a guy, what a guy. What a guy. um I like that Crusher Hogan is WWE. Um, I think that makes total sense, and I think that's a direct um, inspiration for the Raimi movies with Bonesaw. For sure, for sure. He's a he's a he's a funny little guy. <laughs> I like I I like the suit. The suit looks really nice. I think it's one of the best. Uh, it's a suits. really clean suit. Yeah. Especially when when it's the wrestling suit at first and it doesn't have the webbing over it yet. I like yeah. the, the solid red and blue. Oh, yeah. It, it, like, the coloring on the suit is really, really nice. Um, and also, the eyes. I love the bigger eyes. The eyes are really expressive. Oh, yeah. It's... It's very. It also keeps with the friendly neighborhood aspect of the character, where it's, his eyes are big and bug-like, but they're also like very warm and inviting. Like, it's if I were saved yeah. by this guy, I would be like, "Wow, this guy seems like a cool dude. Like, he doesn't scare me." You know. I like the. I like the end of the first issue, where the last, the last two and a half pages are mostly silent. And it's Peter step-by-step, limb-by-limb, climbing up the wall until he gets upside down and he's hanging. And the only thing he can say is cool. I, re- I like that. <laughs> That's a great way to do, like, the discovery of the powers. Oh, yeah. It's just like, what, like, what a teenager reaction. Like, just like, oh, cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's really nice. I yeah. like that he actually becomes friends with the bullies or Kong yes. bullies. That's really nice. 
Yeah, and, and as you get further into the book, like, everyone develops. Like, everyone goes through a metamorphosis. No one is stasis throughout the whole thing. Like, everyone grows. Everyone evolves. And it feels so good to see people are making progress instead of being reset every story so that it's like, you know, because, like, when you go through the Ultimate Spider-Man book, Peter's always going to be this way. MJ is always going to be this way. Like, everyone is always being reset. But with the Ultimate books, they do this thing where, like, everyone grows and they never reset. Everything mm -hmm. is always constantly evolving, no matter what. Even when they get into Miles Morales, everyone is still growing. It's good. so good. And it's so just, like, going from normal comic books like the 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 main universe to this is so cathartic it's like oh my gosh it's like you're watching a television series like a spider-man netflix show oh where, it definitely does yeah it's it's awesome i love it so much all right well this was a fun short little conversation that examined the ultimate universe through the lens of spider-man oh thank yeah for, yeah thank you for joining us eddie yeah, thank you so much for having me. If you uh, if you read further into the book, I would love to come back and discuss yeah. uh, uh, more in depth uh, the rest of the book. That would that would be really cool because I have so much left to say yeah. uh, about the book that exists outside of this first seven issues that I think could be huge topics of discussion. So that would be awesome. <laughs> I love this book. I love it with all my heart. It's my favorite um, Spider-Man run. Before you go, um, do you have anything you want to plug? Anything you got coming out soon? Uh, yes. Okay, I just had to remember when this was coming out. <laughs> you already said it, but like my brain just got muddled. Uh, March 3rd, I am releasing uh, my debut short film uh, called Failure. It's a boxing story set in the future, cyber boxing, uh, about a young boxer who was trained by his father uh his abusive father that um is learning to grow uh and learn that he his family is not always through blood uh it's uh it's it's a short little little uh thing that i really liked uh creating we got uh yuri lowenthal in the in the short as well the voice that's what, of, I, was, that's of what I was about to say I, you got, <laughs> so you got cool. a spider-man in this yeah it was a it was a big thing like someone brought up to me like oh you went from creating spider-man content to working with a spider-man which was pretty cool and i'm really excited for that so that comes out on march 3rd the same day as uh as creed 3 so watch our thing and then go watch creed don't watch creed first because obviously i there's no way i'm gonna do better than creed so make sure you watch my thing first and then you go see creed <laughs> But uh, yeah, that's that's time, my thing right now. Did you did you time the release date to Creed Three? Yeah, because I was like, oh man, boxing search terms are gonna be through the roof. Like the SEO is just gonna be so nice that I was like, I have to do this. Everyone's gonna be looking for boxing stuff, and uh, I would be remiss that's if I did not how put it up. There. You play the game. Yes, social hacking. Social hacking. Let's do it. All right. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to this conversation of Spider-Man that came out 
nearly two years after the last Spider-Man movie was released into theaters. <laughs> I do not well, know how to play the game. Um, two years before the next one comes out. That's true. <laughs> they Good film point. at the end of the year. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we're at the midpoint. Get ready. <laughs> um, Thank you all for listening. Um, you can follow us on all the socials. Um, find us wherever you are able to get podcasts. And remember, Spider-Man is the only ultimate Marvel character that doesn't eat anyone. Goodbye, he may, everyone. He may as well be the only one that exists. Yep. Yep. <laughs>